Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be in verse 15. And as we read this, let's just, uh, let's expect God to speak to us as a church. He speaks to us through his word. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Paul says this. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you for these times where we get to come before you as a church and we get to gather around something beyond entertainment, around something even beyond lecture, around something even beyond just programs and music and speaking and talking, but something that transcends our lives and yet meets us in an imminent way, your word. Thank you, Lord, that your written word really points us to the living word, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we're praying that as we read the written word, it would put the living word on full display. So that as we gather underneath Christ, you would pour out the living water that you would satiate and fill up our souls. Come to you thirsty and hungry for more righteousness. We thank you that righteousness is found in no one else except our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, in a sense, we've really come to gather around you, Jesus. So situate yourself in the midst of this church. Make yourself widely known and loved and adored and worshipped. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago in Carpinteria where uh, Brianna and I live, we uh, and many of you are familiar with the annual avocado festival that Carpinteria throws on. Uh, Bree and I have been going to that for a number of years. It's actually where we first started uh, dating one another. Was a uh, bless you. Is where we uh, we first started to date one another. Was at the avocado festival. I don't know whether it was because we both like avocados and uh, we were both just starting to get to know each other. It was right after church. But it was the best of every possible world, and so we just started to do that. It became a, a regular routine. We, we go to that every year. And I remember after one of those specifically, we had gone to the store, brought back avocados to make like some nachos or something. We're like one of the few couples in Carpinteria that doesn't have an avocado tree in our backyard, so we still go to the store to get them. And we had brought a bag full of these avocados, and I remember being a little bit frustrated because they were not yet ripe. I wanted to make just some guacamole. The avocados were not yet ripe, and I remember just being frustrated. And uh, Brianna, as wise as she is, grabbed the whole bag of avocados, took them, put them into a cupboard, shut the door. And she said, give it a few hours, maybe at the the longest, uh, tomorrow morning, and they'll be good. Sure enough. I opened up that cupboard, and they were ripe, they were tasty, and they were ready for me to do business with them. I asked her, what's the deal? I'd never heard of that before in my life. Most people have been doing that. I'm just a little out of the loop. And she said, avocados got to be put in the right environment for prolonged periods of time before they start to fully mature. 
You get them when they're a little hardened. They don't even taste very well. But if you put them in the right environment, they will start to mature very fast. You'll know that avocado is ripe because, number one, the potency of its flavor. Number two, because of the pliability of the avocado. It starts to give a little bit. It's not hard anymore. It tastes good, and it's softened. I want to talk to you from Ephesians chapter 4. And the title of the sermon this morning is called An Environment for Maturity. An Environment for Maturity. And I'm getting that title from the second part of verse 15. Let's read it together. The purpose of all of this, every part of chapter 4, is so that we might grow. Let us grow in every way into Him who is the head, Christ Jesus. But the environment for that has to do with the first part of that verse. So I'm going to spread it out in three subheadings just so we can tackle it as fast as possible. Number one, I want to look at where we want to be. Number two, I want to look at where we want to be and look at where we are now as individuals and corporately as a church. But then thirdly, and this is where it's going to get juicy avocado. I want to say, well, how do we get from where we are now to where we want to be? And that, I believe, is what verse 15 is going to do for us by the power of God. Where do we want to be? This is the plan. If we were to look at uh, chapter 4 and say from chapter 4, what is the point of all of this? Why do we gather as a church? Why do we get together? Why are we even here? The plan should be fairly easy for anybody in in, in here who is a Christian. Meaning, if you're a Christian, where do we want to be is an easy question to answer. You want to be conforming to the fullness of Jesus Christ. You want to live your life, spend your life, and be well spent in the progressive understanding of Jesus, the Holy Son of God. That is all you want to do. If that is not at the deepest core of your heart, it's hard to label yourself as a Christian. Because Christianity is more than just filling out a bulletin. It's more than just praying a sinner's prayer. It's more than just titling yourself a Christian. It's more even than doing right things or going to church services. Being a Christian is something inherent about your heart where the Holy Spirit changes you from what you used to be before. He gives you a heavenly hunger for righteousness. It doesn't mean you're always doing the right things. It doesn't mean you're perfect. But it does mean that something having to do with the desires of your heart has changed. So, if you're a Christian, the answer for you is easy. Where do we want to be as a church? We want to be wherever Jesus is at. We want more of that guy. We want his fullness. We want the experience. We want the encounter. And most of all, we want to conform to who he is and everything we see about him. Paul gives a wonderful definition of what a Christian is in Galatians chapter 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is actually no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I'm I'm still alive, but the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up for me. And so Paul is expressing what every Christian knows, even just a little bit, down to the, the deepest core of who they are. We want to be more like Jesus Christ. 
And he has a few metaphors in which to describe this. Sometimes he, he calls it a building being put together. Sometimes he talks about a field and agricultural analogies. But his favorite seems to be that of a person growing, like from a newborn baby. So Paul's plan, is the plan that we are a part of, is illustrated by Paul's favorite analogy of growth. And this is our second question. If our plan, if what we're asking is where do we want to be, then we should also be looking at our life and saying, well, where are we right now? And every Christian is going to fall somewhere along the spectrum. It's not a bad part of the spectrum, but if you look at the life as Paul would use it, this metaphor of a newborn baby growing older. You start as a newborn, you grow into a mature man or woman, and then you die. Somewhere along that spectrum, in the same way, the Christian should fall. You are either a newborn or you are somewhere else after that, growing. But whether you are a newborn that knows nothing except that you love Jesus crucified and risen, or you are a 90-year-old seasoned saint who's been walking faithfully, one thing we all have in common, there is still more to grow in. So somewhere along the scope, along that spectrum between being a newborn baby Christian and being a faithful Christian seasoned and walking forward, we can all say, that there is more for us to be had of Christ. Think of it as that mathematical asymptote line. Those things that used to frustrate me in ninth grade or whatever it was. Last year. <laughs> it's that line, you know, that, that moves in a curve and it continually approaches that graph, that zero. But the closer it gets, or I should say, the closer you get the more that you need to go. In other words, you can keep going for infinity, but that line, as though it's approaching zero, it never actually contacts zero. In the same way, you can grow in your faith in Christ and get close to the Lord, close to one another, and yet you will not tap into all the resources that God has for you. You will not exhaust His attributes and His character until you see Him face to face. We are on that line. There's still more of him to be had. So that moves us to the third question. Wow, we went through all three points. That was quick. <laughs> the last point's like 25 minutes long, so put your seatbelt on. We ain't going anywhere. If we are looking at the plan, why am I here? I am here to experience Christ, enjoy Christ, be conformed to Christ. Where am I at, second question, on the line so that I can gauge where I need to be? Third question, well, how do I get there? How do I get to a place where I'm experiencing Christ more in my life and conforming more to the life of Christ? This is an, uh, an important question that we should find ourselves asking on a daily basis. The late evangelist and theologian John Stott once said that holiness is not a condition into which you drift. Meaning you don't just wake up in the morning and you just default into holiness. No, you default into the opposite of holiness. You need to press into these things of God. In the same way that a baby doesn't just wake up one morning and they're 30 years old. They've got to learn a few things. 
And it is the duration of a well-lived life, that which is supplied by grace in Christ, but given for us to engage in. How do we get there? I'm getting this from the first part of verse 15. If the plan is let us grow into the head, Christ Jesus, the means, the gracious means is in the first part, speaking the truth in love. Growth in this body is going to have to do with speaking the truths to one another in love. I'm going to spend the rest of these 20 minutes speaking about two words. Truth and love. When Paul says something about truth, when he says, I want you all, speaking to the church, I want you to speak truth to one another. He's saying more than just not lying. He's speaking more about just saying things that are factually correct. He's speaking more about being confessional, meaning gathering around not just a couple facts, but around the full body of the truth of the message of Jesus Christ. He's saying knowing not just the gospel, but the law and the gospel, the full counsel of scripture, everything written in here that God has written to humanity that we might know him. Paul is saying, that is what I want you to speak to one another. Not just a couple factoids, not just a couple nugs that are truthful that you should tell one another, but I want you to grow in the gospel. We could substitute for speaking the truth, we could say acknowledging the truth. Because in that we're saying, not only do we know that which is true about Christ, but we also accept what is true about Christ. Everything that he says in here, I accept as true to the extent that I submit to what he says is true. It entails obedience. And so how do we do these things? They're very simple. Well, first, we got to know what he says to us. You know that God speaks to you on a daily basis? He's right there. God speaks to us. We have the privilege and the honor of reading it, to, uh, uh, reading it to ourselves. Jesus would go so further as to say that we could memorize and meditate on it. He would say in the Gospel of John, if my words abide in you and you abide in me, you can ask whatever you ask and it shall be done for you. All of these things, though, are on a personal level. We are Uh, digesting and pouring into the truth of God. We are learning about who it is, this God that we serve on a personal level. But what Paul says is he's speaking on a communal level. He's saying at some point, that's got to spill out over into the lives of your friends. It's got to spill out into your family and your coworkers and your, your uh, point of references and your contacts and your, your, uh, peop- the people that are in your life. And so that meditation, that scripture, that understanding of who God is, those spiritual encounters, that meditation has to spill out into spirit-led discussion. Hopefully we're not just spending the rest of our lives talking about food that we eat and sports and fun things and business practices, all good things, but hopefully we're talking to each other about Jesus. We grow through talking to one another about Jesus. Have you ever been in a calm group? and you've studied that verse, and you've brought something to the table, but someone else brings something, like they've, they've poured out this other facet to, the, to that verse of Scripture, and you're like, oh, man, that really spoke to me. I never would have seen that unless you said it. 
There's something incredible that happens when people who love Jesus get together and love Jesus together. When we gossip the gospel together. When we are gospeling to each other. There's a supernatural growth that happens. Depending on where you are in the spectrum, maybe you don't know anything about the scriptures. Man, plug yourself into a class. Grab someone who seems to know the Bible and just start talking to them about it. Calm groups are a great environment for this to happen. But Paul's point is that the word goes in and it spills out into the family of God. And that's where one element of growth is. And that, that truth is not limited to Sunday morning programs. It's not limited to what we're doing right now. This is one hour that I get your attention. But you've got many hours from Monday to Saturday. Who's got your attention? Truth is not limited to these certain programmatic things, although they're, they're a supplement, they're important. Paul is speaking about the confession of faith that invades every sphere of your life, in the workplace, in recreation, in family, in relationships. And truth makes up half of that environment in which the Christian finds themselves growing. Just as a, a bit of an aside, Paul is right now telling us to learn truth about God. And he's telling us to unify about truth about God. But what happens when we disagree with people about truth about God? What happens when we bump heads, not even just about truth about God, but about all sorts of things? Perhaps some of you are experiencing that right now. Whether it's things that are theological, or maybe it's bumping heads with people over politics, or social economic subjects, or how to run the family, or how to run uh, the workplace. How do we maintain our beliefs while maintaining our relationships? and without steamrolling one another. I think there are three ways to think about truths that will help us to do this. One, you can think, and I'm going to speak specifically from a theological standpoint. You can apply this to a lot of things. We should think about the teachings of God in three different ways. One, there are certain beliefs. We could call them first-order beliefs. These we can call those which are fundamental and essential to the faith. These are those things that if you were to relinquish your belief in them, everything falls apart. Martin Luther once famously said that the church stands or falls on our understanding of justification. It's stuff like that. People that uh, Christians throughout Christian history have died for before they were willing to say, I will relinquish my belief in that. I'm talking about the deity of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the death of Christ, salvation in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. Things like that, that if that did not exist, we'd be in a mess. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I think it's uh, chapter 15, uh, without the resurrection, if Christ didn't die, we're silly, man. You're still in your sins. What are we doing here? There are certain beliefs that are first order. So, I can unify with anybody that agrees with those things. I can call it a kingdom-minded mindset. A good example of this is uh, 
uh, once a month, a few of the pastors and staff members in Santa Barbara and in Carpinteria, and I, I believe in Ventura, get together on a monthly basis to pray for their city. I've been to a couple of these, and the, the group of people that's represented there is eclectic. There are people in that group that if they, they would not agree on an iota of theological beliefs, but they go into that room believing Christ died for our sins and was resurrected. I love you. You love Christ. We love our city. Let's pray for it. That allows us to experience a beautiful sense of unity with the church. We don't have to divide over small, tiny things. We can be unified around the most fundamental issues. But then, when we gather together as a local church, we don't want to gather and, wor- and base our worship on the lowest common denominator. We want to know some of those things that we believe that forms our worship. We can call these second-order doctrines or belief. We are, in a sense, not just kingdom-minded. We are tribal-minded. This is, this is my tribe. Reality is my tribe. I love you guys and girls, ladies, men, babies. And we get together not abstractly, not arbitrarily, but because we believe certain things about the Lord that informs our worship. We have certain structures that affect how we run our corporate gathering. A Baptist has uh, different second-order doctrines than a Presbyterian. They don't hate each other. They just do church differently. That's all right. It's their specific expression. But it does not define the gospel. Then we could say there are third-order doctrines. This is what I would do when I get together with my family, with my, my bros. You know, like my bro Alex Williams. We get together and we eat pizza and we talk about stuff that just doesn't matter because it's fun. These things should never divide anybody. They should never divide anybody, and yet we should have the freedom to talk about such things and go as deep as we want to go because we want to know everything about Christ there is to know. A good example of this is eschatology, end times, when is he coming, what's it going to look like, things we should study and be aware of, but we will have differences. It should not divide anybody in this room, but it can provide a robust discussion of things. If we can think about truth in that way, and I don't even just mean theological truth, but political truth. Some of y'all dividing with each other. On Sunday mornings, you're a part of one family. On Monday, you hate that person. We don't need to divide about such things. Social economic reasons, family reasons, uh, different ways that we organize uh, how we do business, Uh, how we run our families. The list is endless. It's helpful for us to put those things into categories. What are the things that are worth dividing over? What are those that aren't? If we're able to do that, we would be able to adhere to what Paul then says is the second element of that environment for growth, and that's love. That's our ability to be pliable, to sacrifice what we think is right on behalf of other people, to love them at our expense. Love is, in the simplest sense, serving someone else at your own expense. And this is in direct contrast to what we saw last week in verse 14. Let's read that again. Paul says, we will no longer, this is the hope, we'll no longer be children, little children, 
tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching. Listen to this. By human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. Do you hear what he's doing? He's contrasting the truth with every wind of teaching. He's contrasting truth with false teaching. But that's not all he's contrasting it with. He's contrasting human cunning and cleverness in the techniques of deceit with love. Paul is not just condemning the wrong message. He's condemning the wrong delivery of that message as well. One writer put it this way. He said, believers cannot make use of the same means of manipulation and deceit as those who are ready to lead believers astray. Instead, we proclaim the truth by means of love. I want you to marinate in the implications of that for our lives. Do you know what Paul is saying? He's saying, yeah, the content of our message has got to be in truth, but the delivery of that message has to be in love. Don't neglect one to get the other. And people often say, I've heard people say to me and to one another, well, the fact that I'm telling the truth is loving. No. The fact that you're telling the truth is truthing. Paul differentiates between the two. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 through 3. If I speak human or angelic languages but do not have love, I am a sounding gong. I'm a clanging cymbal. He differentiates between the speaking of truth and the giving of that truth. And if we're, to, if we're talking about truth, I would say that the highest form of truth coming through the mouth of a person is that gift of prophecy, where God speaks through a man or a woman when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. That's where we have Scripture, the highest form of Scripture coming out of a, a, a person's voice. You know what Paul says? If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith and can move mountains but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I donate all my goods to feed the poor, if I give my body in order to boast but don't have love, I gain nothing. Paul is saying that the truth without love does not constitute a spiritually maturing environment. It actually stunts your growth. You can preach truth to one another all day long. When love is not present, you stunt each other's growth. You wonder why people don't listen to you even though you're telling them all the right things. It's because love persuades people to listen to what you have to say. Paul said Christ's love compels us. So we should be asking ourselves, well, if we know what the truth is, then we should probably be preoccupied with knowing what love is because the world will tell you all sorts of things about what love is. Paul is very specific. We could just keep reading in verse 4. Paul says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not conceited, does not act improperly, is not selfish. Y'all hearing this? Is not provoked, 
does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but in, uh, rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never ends. So if we were to look at this verse in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, and wanted to obey it, we would have to say, to speak the truth in love means I have to say the right things about God and humanity through the grid of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. How are we doing? I think I failed in at least 70% of those in yesterday alone. When you speak to someone who disagrees with you, Love says to be patient with them. Are we patient? When you are talking to somebody in your life who you know is going down a destructive path, are you provoked by them? Or are you able to bear all things and hope all things? When you are correcting someone who is clearly in the wrong, are you improper in the way that you address them? You know, improper or unbecomingly means to speak in a way that is unattractive or that detracts from your reputation? Are you speaking in a way that's cutting down the argument that you're making? When you're speaking to your kids, my job so far is easy because all she does is scream, smile, and cry. We don't have to reason together, me and Abby. But some of you have 10-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 20-year-olds... 40-year-olds, when you speak to your kids, do you bear all things? When you're talking to your spouse, and that your spouse is laying into you, and you're taking it with a smile on your face, but in your mind, you are listing all the things that they have done over the past year to justify what you're about to say. Love keeps no record of wrongs. How are we doing? I'm doing quite pitiful. Thank you very much. <laughs> Love is, it turns out, multifaceted. It changes the environment where truth can grow. In fact, we see right here in our verse, in verse 15, that speaking the truth in love is, uh, speaking to one another in love is an element of truth. But look back a few verses in verse 2. Paul says, we should be with all humility and gentleness, with patience, accepting one, listen to this, accepting one another in love. So in verse 15, we're told to speak in love. In verse 2, we're told to accept one another in love. One is truth, the other is grace. And like two bookends, Paul corrals everything in our relationships with one another in truth and grace. We're not just supposed to tell each other right things. We're supposed to treat each other well. Love is manifest in grace and truth. This is crucial for us not just to know but to repent of when we veer from wrong. I've got to repent of this every day. And here's why. Because if we are growing, our tendency is to grow in one or the other, either grace or truth. Some of you are perhaps really good at growing in the truth area. You are that confrontational person. You speak truth into people's lives. You're that person who, if you see someone veering, oh, you'll tell them, you know. 
What What are you doing, bro? And that's good. But without love, you become a sin sniffer. Nobody wants to be sniffed by a sin sniffer. If that's you, and I find myself being that person more often than I would like, I notice that I begin to point people's faults out before I think first of how what I'm doing is making them feel. And anytime you do that, it always blinds them to the truth that you're trying to tell them. You actually counteract what you're trying to do. Self-defeating. The effect is often self-righteousness in you because you sniff out everyone's sin but your own, in the person you're ministering to because they feel totally uh, condemned and looked down on by you. Self-righteousness in this case can often turn into condensation, (laughs) condescension. We can find ourselves patronizing people, thinking we're doing that out of love, In some of the worst forms, sin sniffing can become bullying. We can take part in spiritual abuse with one another. In every single aspect, there is a lack of holiness because no one is growing. But some of you are on the opposite end of the spectrum. You are all about love. You love everybody. We need more of you in our church too. Some of you are all about love and how it makes a person feel, but for some of you, it's to the detriment of truth meaning you are so wrapped up in what people think that you never tell them what the Word of God says about their situation. Maybe because you're afraid of what they think about you or because you don't want to hurt their feelings. But what that does is when you let go of the truth, it ends up leaving those people in their sin. If it's someone that's sinned against you and you're too bashful to tell them in truth, what that does is it leaves them in their sin and it keeps you in a place to harbor bitterness. The effect is relativism. There's no boundary lines. There's no absolute truth. Anything goes. In the cases where people have sinned against us, it allows us to take and entertain resentment. Again, no growth. When both love and truth, or love and grace are cultivated, uh, excuse me, truth and grace are cultivated, you see an incredible amount of spiritual well-being. Because there is an environment where the man and the woman can be exposed to their sin. Why? Because there is a confession of truth. They see how holy God is. They see how sinful they are. And the confession of truth leads to a confession of sin. And there's this beautiful repentance and restoration. Because we have been cultivating an environment for the Holy Spirit to work in. Jesus was so good at that. That's why we need more of Jesus. You remember John chapter 4 when he went up to the woman at the well who had five boyfriends? And he walks up to her, and what does he do? He befriends her. He speaks to her. He gets on her level. He relates to her. He asks her for a drink. They drink water together. He asks about their family, talks about their family, religious life, worship. Hey, what you doing? How is it in Samaria? But he also doesn't leave her in that place. He addresses the situation. In fact, he so lowers himself. He doesn't just get on her level. He asks her for a drink, lowering himself below her before he speaks truth into her life. 
the end result is she brings all of Samaria to his doorstep. Love Jesus. More Jesus. Growth is happening when we see truth and love intersecting at the same time, when it's balanced. Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Truth and love together. We can put it in a different way. We could say it this way. Because what Paul, uh, excuse me, what Peter says after that to those of you who have been born again, we could say in different words that words are the barometer of your spiritual maturity. Going back to those first three questions, where am I at on the spectrum? Well, you can tell by how you speak to people. Your words are the barometer of your spiritual maturity. How you interact with one another in your family, with your spouse, with your, your siblings, with your kids, how you interact with your coworkers, with your employees, with your employer, recreation, how you hang out with the boys, you know? How you hang out with the girls behind closed doors, how you speak when no one's looking, and I dare say, how you think when no one's looking. Are truth and love intersecting in all of these relationships? Jesus said, out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks. I love how the NASB puts it. It says, for his mouth speaks from that which already fills his heart. You want to know what's in the heart? Just squeeze it a little in a time of suffering. See, we all know how we talk to each other here at church. Real nice. But when you encounter a trial, when someone cuts you off in a parking lot, as soon as you leave this building, something really weird happens to us. We get super real. And our words are the barometer of how much we are growing in Christ. And that is an incredibly good caveat because all throughout the sermon, I have been saying the words essentially reveal the heart, but some of you have been hearing, if I speak better, I'll get better. I've been saying the words reveal what's already there. Some of you have been hearing, I need to change my words to change what's there. Hold on, flag on the play. By speaking, we end up revealing that we are not quite as well as we originally thought we were. The heart is deceptfully, deceitfully wicked. Above all else, it is sick. Here's what the Apostle James said about our mouths. He said, the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among the parts of our bodies. It pollutes the whole body, sets the course of life, uh, a course of life on fire, and is set on fire by hell. Every sea creature, reptile, bird, animal is tamed and has been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. We praise our Lord and Father with it, and we curse men who were made in God's likeness. Praising and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers, these things should not be this way. Our problem isn't that we need to speak better words. Our problem is that our hearts are decept uh, deceitfully wicked. Our problem is that our hearts are not perfect and our words simply give that problem away. What we need is not a lesson in how to speak good. 
what we need is a Savior who speaks perfect truth into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit and who simultaneously loves us graciously when we don't speak well back. And we, in a sense, cannot just try to get our our act together, but we look upon the living Word who speaks directly to us. You know what John said in John chapter 1, verse 14? The Word, the living Word, became flesh and took residence among us, and we observed His glory. That's where you and I got to be for the rest of our lives, on that asymptote line, observing His glory. The glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You want to know where your transformation comes from? It doesn't come from being nicer or being right about life. It comes from observing and trusting in the power and the authority and the glory and the splendor of Jesus. From beholding his beauty and thirsting after it. If I were to ask some of you, how do you know that you are a Christian this morning? And if your best answer today is to say, because I come to church, it is highly likely that you do not know God. If I were to ask you, are you a Christian? Yes. How do you know? Well, it's because I obey God's word. It's highly likely that you are not a believer. If you qualify your salvation with anything that you have done, it is highly likely that you do not know God in a saving way. Unless you come to the table saying, I can bring nothing to this agreement except my sin. And Christ has brought everything to this agreement, including his righteousness. I have nothing left in and and of myself except to throw myself at the mercy seat of God and receive from him in faith. You are lost. If that's you, throw yourself at the mercy seat of God and receive all that he has done for you on the cross and in his resurrection. Our words expose a sinful heart, but God's word heals and changes hardened ones. You, after you have been initially changed by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, and you have been, as Jesus says in John 3, born again by the Spirit, you got to put yourself in the right environment. you got to lock yourself in that cupboard where love and truth exist for prolonged periods of time. A good environment to be, if we're just simply to look at what Paul says, is to live in that tension of the gospel. And here's what I mean. And this is for Christians. For the non-believer, your only way is to be saved by grace. For the Christian, here's the environment that you want a piece of. You want to live inside that tension. The tension of grace where you can look at your life now and look at where you were and say, I am by grace, by the power of God, better off than I used to be. Oh yeah, I'm I'm the meanest person on the face of the planet, but I am less mean than I was last week. And that by the grace of God in my life. But then on the other hand, and here's where the tension is, you see the face of Christ beholding his face and his beauty, and you say, but I am not fully like that. Oh, I am in a better place by grace than I used to be, but I want more. 
I want to be conformed more to that. And so you see where you are. You thank God for where you are by grace. But you are moving forward by joy and gladness. Saying with Paul, I will not be perfect in this life. But I'm going to strive for it until the day I die. I relinquish all things for the sake of knowing Christ. You live in that tension. You will grow, grow, grow and enjoy that heavenly transcendent process. As we worship today, one of the ways that you can kickstart that is by partaking in communion with one another. Because in a sense, you are hoisting up the bread and the juice, and you are saying to Christ, I have nothing to bring to you except my sin. You have everything to bring to me, especially your righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Brothers and sisters, be satisfied in Christ today. By grace, he is satisfied in sinners. Heavenly Father, I just pray over us as a church today what King David would pray over himself. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. May everything about how we interact with one another be hinged upon that last word, our redeemer. That while we were still sinners, Christ, you displayed and dispensed your love by dying on the cross when you had no good reason from us to do so. You did it purely out of love. Truth draped in humanity, dripping in the love of God. I pray that you would pour out by the Holy Spirit love abroad into the heart of this church that we would know and the world would know that we are disciples because of our love for one another. God, I pray for those of us in this room who have been hurt, in this church who have been hurt by others and there's still old, hard, hardened wounds. I pray that today would mark a time for healing. Truth would be spoken, love would be displayed. Pray that you would heal us and you would knit us together. In your precious name, amen.